This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. We're going to dig in real deep into the book of Jeremiah for a little while, and this is not the first time I've talked from Jeremiah or um, that we have really looked deeply into it, but it's been a little while, and this is going to be somewhat different anyway, and I've had a period of a few weeks back in the fall where I was really thinking, evaluating, praying about the ministry here, and, and thinking about some things that we ought to do. And I just thought that to get together with all the adults and do a study in the book of Jeremiah was uh, appropriate for where we are right now. And so initially I said, well, I'm going to do that on Wednesday nights. And we're still doing it on Wednesday nights, by the way. But, but then it hit me last week that, you know, we got s- some adults that can't be there on Wednesday night for that. And I think all of us need to hear this. All of us need to participate in this. And so um, we're going to talk about it on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And it won't get old to you. Don't worry about that, I don't think. Now, my voice might get old, but that's the reason why on Wednesday nights it's going to be more of an interaction, a Q&A, a discussion, and, and a follow-up to what we've been talking about on Sunday. So that'll be good for those who can be there on Wednesday night. But if you can't because of other responsibilities, then... At least you'll be getting the Sunday morning part and you can dig in on your own, which I very, very strongly encourage you to do as at all other times with the word and things that we're talking about is to dig in on your own. Whatever you experience here on Sunday morning should only be complimentary to what you're doing on your own throughout the week. And I've long believed that if you could just get a group of people, God's people, kingdom people, doing the same thing, studying the same stuff, praying about the same stuff, focused on the same stuff, you'd see things happen that you don't see when everybody's flying solo with their own stuff. And nothing wrong with you doing your own devotional stuff, but do this in addition to that if you still need to do that. And the book that has meant a tremendous amount to me through the years, I've probably, I've told somebody, I've probably read this book more than any other Christian book um, ever in terms of the number of times I've read the book. It's not like me to go back and read a book for a second time, but this one I have a few times. And this is Eugene Peterson's book called Run With the Horses. And so I ordered 20 copies of this book and I thought they were gonna get here yesterday so that I could give you one, but they, oh, Tracy snatched them and didn't tell me. That's good, though. So if I can, after church, you know, grab them, give them to you so you can start looking at it this week. And um, I want you to read it. You know, it it will be very, very helpful to you if you'll read it on your own as well so that you come in and as we talk about stuff, you'll be like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you, you will already have thoughts, right? And then the book of Jeremiah you should read. Because Run With the Horses is the story of Jeremiah, straight out of uh, the story of the life of that prophet and his book in the Old Testament. So if you'll do those two things, and if you will 
pray and meditate on it as you study it, then we will um, we'll see a lot of effectiveness in our study with this. And you'll see some power rise up out of it. And you'll see some things happen in your life that you need to have happen because of the unity and because of the vision that the Lord's given us together out of it. So, <clears throat> as I said, Eugene Peterson wrote this book. He's one of my spiritual mentors, although I never met him, and he died a couple years ago. But uh, he wrote a lot of books, and I've read maybe all of them. I don't know. He wrote a whole bunch, 20-some books. And... Um, but this book, Run With the Horses, really just speaks to me so loudly and clearly every time I look at it. And I think the main reason is because of its relevance to the day and time we're living in. It's as if it's written to us right now in America in 2024. It's, uh, you know, it was relevant then, it's relevant now, it's been relevant every year since it was written. It's that kind of literature. So it's extremely important. And, you know, a couple things about Jeremiah. So he lived in the 600s B.C., so 600 years before Christ arrived. Jeremiah was living in Judah, which was the southern part of Israel at that time. And Jeremiah was a prophet and a priest. Okay, so this is a guy who's in the ministry. This is a guy who is in service to God in the temple, in worship, in leadership. He's a priest and he's a prophet. And you need to know that prophets in those days were not looked at like they were heroes usually. They weren't revered as being special. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times prophets were made fun of, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, a lot of them were killed, and they were considered to be weirdos by and large. These guys who showed up saying, God is telling me stuff, and he's demanding that I give it away to you. Because inevitably, the messages they were giving would run against the grain of the way the people were living. And who wants to hear that? Who wants to hear that your life is out of order? Who wants to hear that your disobedience is killing you? Who wants to hear that what you're calling worship is really not? It's some polluted violation of what worship is supposed to be. Who wants to hear that? You know, you don't want to be told that your church is, is a, a ridiculous commercial operation or a big show. You don't want to hear that. If that's your church, it's your church. You like your church. You don't want anybody telling you that your church is out of order. But this was the job of prophets to point out what's out of order. How are you disobedient? And where's it going to take you to? Right? And they were not afraid to do that. In some cases, like in the case of Jonah, he had periods of anxiety, he had periods of fear, he had periods of uh, emotions like that that led him to rebellion. And where did his own rebellion get him? 
It got him in the belly of a great big fish and ultimately vomited out. And then he knew that he had to obey, right? Because when you are called, when you are compelled, when you are chosen, when you are anointed to give away the hard word of God, you'd better do it. You'd better do it without fear of repercussion. You'd better do it without fear of negative results. You'd better just do it. And so Jeremiah is one of those guys. He's a priest and he's a prophet, but he's not a hero. And this is something that I pointed out in our class Wednesday night when we opened up this discussion, is that, you know, here are guys who made the cut. Their stories are in the Bible. That's a pretty good cut to make, right? They have books that are named after them that are in the Bible. Now think about that. Of all the literature that's ever existed in the world, the Bible is the most important piece. Of all the literature that's ever been written, the Bible is the only living document that actually breathes and has life in it. That you can go there after you've read every word and studied every word, and you can go there next time and you think you've exhausted everything you could possibly find there, and all of a sudden you find something new. Has that ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. That's the kind of document the Bible is. Well, you know what? With that in mind, there are only 66 books in the Bible. And of those 66, only a few of them are named after people. I don't know the number, but I don't think it's half. Are named after people. So if you made the cut and you have a book under your name in the most important work of literature ever, created that's a pretty big deal but here's what we need to know about it none of those guys were heroes Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel Daniel these guys were not heroes Amos Jonah Obadiah Micah Nahum even Moses even David even Abraham, these guys were not heroes. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Timothy, on down the line, they were not heroes. Their names are in the Bible, their stories are in the Bible, but none of them were heroic. Why is that significant? Why am I hammering that right now? It's because the lessons that we pull out of their lives are relevant for us right now. And we need to stop this pursuit of God as if God is going to turn us into something fantastic and our name is going to be known in the earth and it's going to be pointed out all these different things that we are doing or did during our lifetimes. Remember last week when I said, when I'm laying up here and y'all are celebrating my life, don't be talking about statistics. That's because we should not ever as followers of Jesus Christ, have as a goal to become a spiritual hero. You read that list in Hebrews chapter 11 of the heroes, quote unquote, of the faith, and you go down the list and you wonder, was that word hero really the best word to use? When you look at how they lived, when you look at how they died, 
There's a difference between a hero and a martyr. The bottom line is this. God is the only hero in the story. There is only one hero in the God story, and that is God himself. And of course, Jesus is God, so he's included in that. The Holy Spirit is God, so he's included in that. The, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is singularly the hero of the story. And so, if these guys are not heroes, what are they? They are obedient servants. They are obedient mouthpieces. They are obedient examples. They are obedient leaders. And they are obedient followers. Because it's not more important to be a leader than it is to be a follower. It's just absolutely important for both leaders and followers to be obedient. Because obedience is everything. Jeremiah, we're not looking at him because he was a hero. We're looking at him because he was an obedient mouthpiece for God himself who is the hero. And the time period that he lived was during the final decades of the nation before invasion by the Babylonians. Okay, so this is so important in the context of what we've been talking about for a long time because if you remember back through the fall, I was using the story of the, the uh, Israelites leaving captivity in Egypt and traveling to the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. Remember that? And what we talked about was all the different ways and all the different things that the enemy uses to try to keep you from arriving at the promise. And we listed about six or seven things that he uses and ways that he uses them. And so that's part of the history of the nation of Israel. That's part of the story that Jeremiah and everybody else knows about. You know, in America now, you can sit down with the average high school student and start asking them basic history questions about the history of this nation, and they can't answer them. They can't answer questions about the presidents, about the states, about the Constitution, about the Declaration of Independence. We're losing our history, right? We're losing a knowledge of who we are and where we came from. They're not teaching it in school like they used to. And kids are left to technology to figure out things however they want to figure them out. You go to any Jewish person who is a, a devout Jew following in their religion, they tell you everything there is to know about the history of the nation of Israel. The, their history is so valuable to them and they never let it go. And they still celebrate all the things that they've always celebrated. They still have the feasts and the festivals. They still have a knowledge and a, a catechism, a training system in their educational systems. That, that guarantees that their young people coming up are going to know the history of their nation. And so this business of what has happened in the past to the Israelites, 
Jeremiah and everybody who's part of their culture is familiar with it. And so they know about Egypt. They know about slavery. They know about deliverance. They know about the Red Sea. They know about Moses. They know about the journey in the wilderness. They know about the cloud of fire and the pillar, the pillar of fire and the, and the pillar of, um, and the cloud by day, right? They know about the provision of manna. They know all those stories. They know about how their shoes didn't wear out in the wilderness. They know about God's miraculous deliverances along the way. And now they're not in captivity anymore. They're living in Judah. They have their society. They have their culture, their lifestyle. But what has happened? Same thing that always happened with the Jews. They start to mix in all sorts of other ideologies with the ways of God. They start to incorporate a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then you've got some mysticism, and then you've got some Baal worship, and then you've got this thing, and then you've got that thing, and they pull it in. But they're still gathering in the temple for worship. So picture this. You have the temple of God. People coming in, just like you came in here today, to worship to offer sacrifices, to pray to Jehovah. And just outside the walls of the temple, you have monuments and idols built to other gods. Let's say you walked out these, these doors right when we're finished, and out there we've got a statue to some other god besides the Lord our God, and on your way home before you get in your car, you bow down and you spend a few minutes worshiping that god as well. That sounds... Ridiculous, right? Sounds like something we would never want to be involved in. But that's what was happening with them. And here's reality, y'all. And that's why this is so relevant to us today, just like it was relevant then. It's still happening. It's still happening. We're not building statues on the parking lot. But believe me, it is still happening where you have people gathering in houses of worship to worship the one true God. But even inside those houses of worship, you've got worship to all sorts of other things going on. You've got worship of image. You've got worship of aesthetics. You've got worship of money. You've got worship of commercialism. You've got worship of fame. You've got worship of appearance. You got worship of all these things that are not born out of the heart of God, and you're worshiping them at the same time you claim you're worshiping the one true God. Just as prevalent today as it was then. So God looks for a man because he always does. He looks for a man to warn the people. And in this case, that man is Jeremiah. And among the people that are to be warned are the people who are part of the religious system. If this wasn't relevant for the church, I wouldn't be talking to you about it. I'd go somewhere else to a relevant spot to talk about it. He's warning the religious system of judgment related to their rebellion and their idolatry and their injustices. And he prophesies to them. He doesn't just tell them, hey, what you're doing here is wrong. He does tell them that. But then he prophesies to them what's going to happen. 
because of what they're doing that's wrong. And he says that God is going to send an enemy to destroy Jerusalem and take the people captive. Jeremiah tells them in no uncertain terms, here's what's going to happen to you. God is choosing an enemy. I don't know if you've ever considered this. I don't know if you know that this is a truth. God will pick a godless enemy to invade your life and flip you upside down if you're living in rebellion to his purpose for your life. It, things don't just happen. I mean, if you have professed and you've claimed, I'm a kingdom son, I'm a kingdom daughter, I'm an obedient servant to the plan, the purpose, the will of God for my life, but then you're worshiping other things and you're prioritizing other things over your relationship with Him. It is not unlike God, has never been unlike Him, to send an enemy, choose and send a godless enemy to you to flip you upside down. And that's what He does in this case. You ever wondered why are these, you know, these folks that... that I'm not really committed to them in any sort of a way. I don't know why they're interested in me. I don't know why they're bothering me. I don't know why they're in my business. Listen, our focus needs to be on cultivating the relationship with Him and walking in obedience to Him, and then we don't have to worry about any of that. When they show up, He'll take care of them. Our fear should be, if we're living in disobedience, that God Himself would choose an enemy to send our way. That's when things get really scary. And he says, God's going to send an enemy to destroy Jerusalem, to take the people captive. And it happened. The prophecy came to pass, and Jeremiah lived through it. He was right there when it happened. He was not one of the people who was taken captive at the initial siege and taken off to Babylon. He was right there in the middle of the destruction. He witnessed it. It was happening all around him. And in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, after 20 years of preaching and prophesying and warning the people, God instructed Jeremiah to collect all his sermons and essays and poems and write them into a volume and he hired a scribe to write it, a man named Baruch. And that's how we have the book of Jeremiah. That's how we have the documentation. And the book begins with Jeremiah's call to be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. Listen, if you're going to speak the truth, you're speaking the truth to everybody. Yeah, I can't stand up here and talk to y'all and give away the truth and then go out here and give away some other filtered or polluted kind of truth in another environment. It just doesn't work like that. If there's not purity in the kingdom, then what is there? If there's not truth that is absolute and relevant everywhere on any occasion with any group of people, then what do we have that we can depend on? And this is a book that is not just for the people of Israel. I just love this part of, of of what we're told is that he is a prophet to the nations. What nations? Well, the nations that were surrounding them, of course. 
you know, Philistia and Moab and all those, Ammon, all those nations, enemies of Israel that were around them. But you know what other nations he was prophesying to? The United States of America and Canada and Mexico and Great Britain and Argentina and China and Russia and Iraq and Iran and everybody else. He was giving away the truth of the words and the heart of God to all of mankind who was living at that time and who would ever live following that time. Prophet to the nations. I love the idea of being called to give away the words of God in a way that is not just a temporary call. And look, all of you, listen, all of you have a responsibility to give away the words of God. And when you give them away, you need to understand that that's forever to everybody. I mentioned the babies that are coming. I've got four grandchildren. I've got two on the way. My gosh, if I don't give myself away and give away the words of God in a manner right now and for whatever time I have left that impacts them when they are 20, 30, 40 years old, then I have come up short in my calling. We have to give it away to the generations that are coming behind us. In, in my 60s now, my, one of my main goals in life is the cultivation, the preparation of my children and my grandchildren to continue to give away the truth when I'm not around anymore. To the nations. The book includes, listen, this, this is so important, so relevant for us. I didn't mean to just sound like Donald Trump. This is so important, so relevant. It's the most important thing that's ever been said. No, I'm just kidding. The message he gives them involves an uprooting. Man, how powerfully necessary is that? How many of you have ever, like, had a runny nose? Only three of y'all? Uh, you understand that the runny nose is not your illness, right? It's a symptom of your illness. You go get an antibiotic to address the illness. It's, you can take some DayQuil to address the symptom. But too often we're dealing with and wrestling with and working around the symptoms and we're not getting down to the root. There's, there has to be an uprooting. And, and look, I don't mean this the wrong way, but it's so much easier to take an, a blatant heathen who's never been a believer and who knows nothing about God and to walk them into the kingdom and to teach them how to cultivate a relationship with the Father than it is to take somebody who grew up in church and thinks they know everything about God but they're way off base and you're trying to get them straightened out and you're trying to clarify what the kingdom of God looks like instead of just church and religious systems. It's way easier to, easier to deal with somebody who has no knowledge of God. Because this process of uprooting all the garbage that needs to get out of there before you can start planting good seed is a pretty significant part of the process. 
And I have an absolute commitment in this house. And that is when I see a symptom of a bad root, I'm on a mission to uproot it and get it out of here. Right? And I don't care what's on the surface level or what, how things appear. When you see symptoms of disease, symptoms of bad whatever going on that, that are symptomatic of a deeper problem, I'm going after the root. I ain't got time or energy to fool with your symptoms, but I'm going to go hard after the root. Because you have to uproot the wrong before the right can really grow and be fruitful. Amen? Jeremiah does a serious uprooting first, and then he accuses <laughs> with, without shame and without fear, without trepidation. He tells them right where they are, and he's not embarrassed to say it. He points out what's wrong and what has to be dealt with. So after the uprooting and the accusing, he gives them a warning. If you don't turn, if you don't repent, if you don't do away with these foreign gods, if you don't stop polluting the truth, here's what's going to happen. Destruction to your community, to your families, to the city that you built, to the temple of God. It's going to lay in ruins and you're going to be taken away as slaves again. But here's the beauty. He doesn't leave them with all the rubble of uprooting and accusing and warning, but the book is replete with hope. There's always hope. As long as you're breathing, there's hope. And Jeremiah gives away that hope, and that's something that we're going to talk a lot about, but I'm just giving you an overview of, of it today, and then we'll start digging in on some of these things. Chapters 1 to 24 were written before the exile, and they lay out what the people did that led to the exile. So don't stop at the end of chapter 24 or anywhere before you get to that or you're just going to walk away depressed. You're just going to walk away feeling like, well, there's no hope for us, right? There's no hope for America. There's no hope for the American church. There's no hope for Christianity and the world. He lays out what led to the destruction and the exile. And there are a lot of adjectives and a lot of labels you could give to it, but I narrowed it down just to this. The, the way God viewed it, if you read this, he uses a metaphor of marriage and faithfulness in marriage. He, and, and at the end of the day, what he says is, idolatry equals adultery. And so this notion in our world, and it's prevalent in our society now, that you can find your own pathway to God, that there's more than one truth, that your truth might be different from my truth, is one of the greatest lies ever perpetuated in the human race. There is only one truth. And when you veer off of that truth, that God is our creator, that he is our sustainer 
He's the Lord of the universes and that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. When you veer off of that in an extreme way or a very slight way, what you're doing is you're committing idolatry. You're starting to worship. You're starting to elevate something above Him, some ideology. And when He said, of all the commandments, here's the greatest, what did He say? You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all, A-L-L underlined in bold, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. If you give God all, I mean all means what? All, right? It means totality. If you give God all of your devotion, your love, your commitment, how much do you have left to give to any other gods? None, because the antithesis to all is none. But when you start to raise up other things, even an idea above the idea of God, you are now in idolatry, and what you've done is you've violated the relationship just like a husband or a wife would violate it if they went out and messed around with somebody they're not married to, right? Adultery. Idolatry equals adultery. And again, among those accused are kings, priests, political leaders. They abandoned God's ways and ignored his instructions, and the result is rampant social injustice. Two things to point out there, and I'm done. Jeremiah is not just talking to average Joe out here on the street that works at the factory and has nothing to do with church. He's talking to the church. Because in the nation of Israel, the king was not only the king, but he was also a religious leader. There was no separation. And then he's talking to the priests that are leading the church, that are leading worship in the temple. These people are more guilty than anybody else. They're more guilty because of their influence, because of what they're leading people to. If the king, and, and Josiah was a good king, but his sons that followed him were terrible. And these are the people that are in charge now. <clears throat> if the king doesn't want other gods, idols outside the temple, if he doesn't want it there, it's not going to be there. Right? If the priests rose up in rebellion to it, even if the king did want it, and en masse said, no, our commitment is 100% to the one true God, we're not doing this. And either rebelled or just quit the priesthood because they wouldn't do it, then it wouldn't have been happening. <coughs> the leadership, the spiritual leadership was leading and participating in the idolatry slash adultery. This is how it's, the, gr the grievance here is magnified, multiplied so badly and then the result of them abandoning God's ways and ignoring His instruction 
is rampant social injustice. Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? Well, it's God's heart for the poor, for the weak, for the vulnerable. Because, let's see if I can explain this the right way. When the church gets its worship focus distorted, then its ministry focus is going to become distorted. When the church starts to incorporate things that don't belong in the church, it's going to affect the church's interest in, effectiveness in, ability to minister to people who really have serious needs. I can throw out some examples. Don't want to point fingers or call names. I won't do that. But why is it that churches with hundreds, sometimes thousands of members, will call churches like this with 50 and say, hey, we've got a homeless, pregnant 18-year-old girl. We don't know what to do with her. Will y'all come get her? Why, why is it that church up the street with five, six hundred members and a lot of money, why do they send people down here to get a hundred dollar check to help with their light bill? Why do they call us and say, hey, uh, can y'all put them up at, at the day's end for two nights? And hey, by the way, we pay light bills and put people up at the day's end and give away food and and, and I'm not saying that we're against doing that. That's who we are. It's what we do. I just always have this question mark in my head about why every church can't do that. If, if your worship is on point, if you have a clear understanding of the Word of God, if there's no pollution, then why do you have such trouble even understanding how to do the basics of benevolent ministry or give away the compassionate heart of God in the earth? You know, the 12th Psalm says, Into the hovels of the poor, into the dark streets where the homeless groan. God speaks. I've had enough. I'm on my way, way to heal the ache in the heart of the wretched. What does that mean? It means that God hangs out with the poor, the needy, the sick, the lonely, the frightened, the widow, the orphan. That's where the church ought to be where the church ought to be. You know, there are churches in Atlanta that won't let a homeless guy come in on Sunday morning and sit on the back row for worship because he don't look right, he don't smell right, and he can't put anything in the offering plate. I don't think that starts with a committee meeting that says, hey, well, you know, we're just not going to do that. I think it starts with what's going on in your worship. What's going on in your understanding of the Word? Whether there might be some things in there that need to be uprooted. Whether somebody might ought to stand up and start accusing you of some things that are wrong. And warning you about the dangers of this kind of idolatry. So, that's my little introduction to Jeremiah and 
We're going to follow a little bit through things that Peterson has to say in Run With the Horses. That verse comes from Jeremiah 12, 5. You're probably familiar with it where he says, uh, God's speaking to Jeremiah, says, Hey, Jeremiah, listen, um, if you're getting worn out, hanging out with the footmen, how are you going to compete with horses? When the pressure's on, what are you going to do when the Jordan is flooding? How are you going to handle that if you're over here moaning and groaning about a little, you don't have enough bread in the pantry? You know? So the whole purpose behind this is maturity, depth in our understanding of God's words and, and the heart of God and how He thinks and how He operates. We need to be growing, growing, growing more and more. Why? So that we can clearly see what He's doing, what He wants us to do, and so we can clearly hear what He's saying, and then we make a commitment to say yes to it. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank You for uh, challenging us toward this study, and I know you got good stuff in it. I think You've given us a good jump start with it. And I pray over your people that they will go from here and that they will jump into the book of Jeremiah and to run with the horses, that they will pray and meditate about what they're seeing and hearing and that they will come prepared and that you will change us, grow us up even more than ever, mature us in our faith and give us opportunities to prove that in your kingdom every day. So pray for blessings of peace and power and provision and protection. Until we meet again, in your name we pray. Amen.